Well, when we read from the Bible earlier in the service, we read one of the great truths of Scripture. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7, talking to Christians. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, it's a wonderful truth that God calls every single genuine Christian his son. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, male or female, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then you're a son of God. And that's got some incredible consequences for us this morning. So what we're going to do, just very simply, is look at this verse in its context and see why that truth matters so much and what a difference it should make to our lives. Because I wonder if for many of us, the fact that we're sons of God is something that we've forgotten, or at least something that we rarely reflect on. It's odd, really, I think, that we forget this truth, that we're sons of God, because many of us remember very easily that God is our Father. Perhaps every time you pray, you might remember that God is our Father. So we remember that God is our Father, but somehow forget that we're His sons. So this morning I want us to try and help put that right a little bit. And we're going to reflect on three truths that this passage points us to. Uh, here's the, the first truth uh, that uh, this passage points us to. It's this. If we're sons of God, it's because we're adopted into God's family. If we're sons of God, it's because we're adopted into God's family. Now, this is the, the absolute foundational truth. If we get this wrong, we misunderstand the whole of the rest of the sermon and, well, very probably the whole of the Bible. What we're saying here is that no one, except for Jesus, of course, no one is a son of God by nature. Uh, no, instead, the Bible tells us very clearly that by nature we are children of wrath. That's our, that's our nature. Uh, let me remind you of the verses we read earlier, at least some of them. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, that's Jesus, of course, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, Paul is making it very clear, in other words, nobody, apart from Jesus, is a son of God by nature. By nature, we're sons of wrath, we're told that elsewhere. In this particular passage, uh, Paul tells us, uh, verse 4 and 5, by nature we are under the law. Under the law. Now, what on earth does that mean when Paul says we are under the law? Well, it means simply this, that by nature, the way that we're born and made, by nature, our relationship with God is not one of sonship. It's not one of family. By nature, our relationship with God is one of rules and regulations, the law. So let me use an illustration that might help us to, to understand this a little bit better. How would you describe your relationship with the Queen? All right? How would you describe your relationship with the Queen? 
Now, I'm sure there's perhaps one or two people here who could say, well, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was King Henry's fourth cousin twice removed. Maybe some of you could say that. I'm related to the Queen. Okay, well, if we go back far enough, all of us, but let's forget about that, okay? What's your relationship with the, with the Queen? Did any of you pop around to see her during the Jubilee? I didn't. Your relationship with the Queen is, is not a family relationship. You might think, well, I don't really have a relationship with the Queen. Probably you would say, I've never met her. Maybe waved from a distance, perhaps, but I've never met her. I don't really have a relationship with the Queen. But you do. You do have a relationship with the Queen. We all do. If you're a citizen of this country, you have a relationship with the Queen. And your relationship is this. She's the sovereign, and we are the subjects. She's the sovereign, we're the subjects. And that means our relationship with the Queen is not one of family. Our relationship with the Queen is one of rules and regulations, because that's what being a subject means. We're subject to her command. We're subject to her laws. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a monarchist, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you love the Queen or think we'd be glad to get rid of a lot of them. Your relationship to her is the same as mine. You're her subject. And you're related to her only in the sense that you should follow her rules and regulations. I don't know if any of you have had the experience of being in trouble with the law, but uh, there used to be a phrase, I don't know if it's uh, still used in, in courts of law, but uh, uh, if you were got in trouble and you were found guilty, what did the judge used to say uh, as he was serving sentence? He used to say this, maybe they still do, you're going to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. So if you want to know anything about your relationship with the law, that little phrase, get the relationship with the Queen, that little phrase gives it away. Now, what Paul is saying here is that by nature, our relationship with, the, with God is just the same as our relationship with the Queen. We have a relationship with God by nature, but it's not a family relationship. It's a relationship of rules and regulations. We are under the law. Now, by nature then, how good is your relationship with God? Because if the way in which we relate to God by our nature is through rules and regulations, then it follows that the quality of that relationship is dependent on our ability to follow the rules and regulations. If we're honest, we'd have to say, well, what are the rules and regulations of God? Jesus summed them up, didn't he? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. By nature, the quality of our relationship with God is dependent on our ability to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that means that by nature, 
our relationship with God is a broken one because we haven't loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've broken those rules and regulations and with it, the relationship between God and ourselves is broken too. We have a broken relationship with God by nature because we relate through rules and regulations. But here's the beautiful thing that Galatians speaks about. God didn't want to simply leave us under the law, relating to him only through our ability to keep rules and regulations. God didn't want that. He wanted to change the legal relationship into a family relationship. He wanted us to be his sons. Now, that couldn't happen by nature. None of us can be sons of God by nature. We're not divine. We're not Jesus. But it could happen. That relationship could change by adoption. And that's what God did, Paul says, that we might receive adoption as sons. So how did God do that? Well, again, Galatians tells us, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God did it by sending Jesus. And that's the wonder of the gospel message. That's why it's so important. How is it possible for fallen, sinful, mortal human beings to be adopted in God's family? How is it possible? There's only one way, Paul says. For the adoption to take place, God's perfect divine Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to become like one of us, born of a woman. He had to step down into this fallen world to take on mortal human flesh, born under the law. And by becoming one of us, Jesus Christ was then able to redeem us. And he redeemed us, firstly, by fulfilling the law. By loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And by loving his neighbor as himself. You see, God had set that law that every human being needed to obey but was failing to obey. God had set that law. Remember, our relationship with God was defined by our ability to love God, to love our neighbor. But Jesus came to put that right. As a human being, as a human being, in a fallen world, Jesus lived the life that you and I have failed to live. He kept every single righteous requirement of the law. And he really did love the Lord, his God with all, Lord our God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, didn't he? He really did love his neighbor as himself. And we can see it. We can see it in everything that Jesus did. And we see it especially at the cross, where Jesus was willing to die the most horrendous death in loving obedience to his heavenly father and in loving sacrifice to the worst of sinners because Jesus knew that living a righteous life on its own would not redeem us because there was a penalty that had to be paid and he took that penalty on himself so in this process of adoption 
Jesus became one of us, fulfilled the law that God had given, triumphed over the consequences of sin as he was raised from the dead, proving once for all that he truly was God's son. But what happened after that? What happened after the resurrection, immediately after the resurrection? You might be thinking, well, there was, the, there was appearances to different people, there was the ascension, yes, but something else happened, something less visible, less seen, perhaps more glorious. What happened was this, after Jesus Christ had died and been raised from the dead, this is what happened. What happened next was that Jesus shared what he had accomplished in his death and resurrection with anyone and everyone who would receive what he offered. He shared his victory over sin. He shared his victory over death. And he even shared his sonship. That's how the adoption was possible. He redeemed us that we might receive adoption as sons. And as he lived in our place, and as he died in our place, we became in him, and he became in, her, in us. And, and he took on our sin, and we received not just his righteousness, we remember that bit usually, we received not just his righteousness, we received his sonship too. So this then is the foundational truth. We are not and cannot be children of God, sons of God by nature. We can only become sons of God by adoption. How can we be adopted? Well, not by going to a family court and getting a certificate from a judge. The Christian is adopted by joining themselves to God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We become adopted by receiving what Jesus Christ has done for us, but by becoming part, joining with who Jesus is, the Son of God. So there's an obvious question for me to ask at this point, isn't there? Are you an adopted Son of God? Now remember, that can only happen if your nature has changed, because by nature you're not a son of God. By nature you're a children of wrath, Ephesians 2 verse 3. So if you've never experienced conversion, real change of the heart and soul, if you've never experienced knowing your sins forgiven, then you're still a child of wrath, relating to God only through those regulations, falling a long way short. But if that is true of you this morning, if you are still a child of wrath, know what God is offering you. Offering you right now the choice of adoption as his son. Will you too put your trust and faith in Christ? Will you follow him? Because if you will, and, and you demonstrate that to him, not to me, by crying out in your heart to God for forgiveness in Christ, then you will receive, right now, this adoption as sons. Now, one more thing before we, we move on. Some of you may be concerned this morning by the Bible's use of male language in this passage and in other passages like it. 
Some of you might wish that this passage in Galatians promised adoption as sons and daughters rather than adoption as sons. So before we move on, let me just briefly explain why Paul says sons and not sons and daughters and why that's a good thing, especially if you're a woman. Now, as you probably know, this part of the Bible, the book of Galatians, was written nearly 2,000 years ago, at some time in the 40s AD. And in that time, the rules of the, the Roman Empire and the rules of many other societies in the world were extremely patriarchal. That meant the men were in charge and let everyone else know that. Uh, women did not have full legal rights of citizens when Galatians was written. In fact, until just a few decades before the book of Galatians was written, uh, every woman in the Roman Empire would always be under the legal control of their father or husband. Now, there started to be little changes in how women were viewed in Roman society. So by the time Galatians had been written, their status, lady status, had been improved slightly. So now, if your husband died, or if you were divorced, then you could control your own legal affairs. But if you'd never married, you would be under the control of your father. And if you were married, you would be under the control of your husband. Complete legal control. No rights uh, of your own. Now, let's just be very clear. I'm not describing the Bible's teaching here. I'm describing the reality of life in the Roman Empire in Galatia when this letter was written. Now, in that context, if you lived in a society like that, and Paul had written that believers in Christ had been adopted as sons and daughters, what do you think people would have concluded? Well, I think that's easy to answer. Every single person reading that letter would have thought that there are two tiers of adoption. There would be the adoption of sons, for the men who would get the full rights, and there would be adoption as daughters for the women who wouldn't get very many rights at all. Because that was the reality of life in their culture. And if Paul had said people are adopted as sons and daughters, then they would have just followed that naturally into their spiritual life, and they would have understood, well, that's what's happening in the spiritual realm too. There are two tiers of people, just as there are two tiers of people in our society, sons who get full rights, daughters who get a tiny minority of rights. But Paul didn't say sons and daughters. And he didn't say sons and daughters deliberately because he didn't want anyone to think that there were two tiers in the spiritual realm because there are not. So Paul said that all Christians, male and female, are all adopted as sons. So everyone would know and everyone would understand there aren't two tiers of adoption in God's kingdom, sons and daughters. There's one tier for everybody, male and female. Share equally in all that Christ has won. Now in the 21st century, at least in our world, saying adopted as sons can sound chauvinistic as if it puts women down. But in the first century, when the Bible was actually written, this part of the Bible, then saying that everybody was adopted as sons if they were Christians sounds radically egalitarian. And that's how it should be understood today. 
In fact, if we had any doubt about that, we could go back to chapter 3 and verse 28, couldn't we? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you're a lady here this morning, you can celebrate that God inspired Paul to write that you too are adopted as sons knowing that that means you have an equal share in Christ and God does not consider you to be a second-class citizen. Well, that's the first truth. It was a foundational truth, so I spent a little bit longer on that. I hope that's okay. But there's two more things that I need to share with you, and the next one is this. We've already said if we're sons of God, we're adopted into God's family, and now if we're sons of God, we are free. We are free. Now, if I was to, to say to you, we're going to talk about being a son this morning. What's the opposite of being a son? What could we contrast sonship with? And perhaps if you'd have time to think about that a little bit, you might think, well, perhaps we could contrast it with being an orphan. That's kind of a bit like the opposite of being a son, maybe. But, but that's not what Paul does here. He doesn't say you were orphans and you became adopted as sons. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he what's his contrast? Not, not orphanhood. His contrast is slavery. Slavery. Now, slavery, of course, they were very familiar with in the, in the ancient world. A, a huge portion of the population were slaves. Many early Christians themselves were slaves. There were slaves in the Galatian church. Now, we've talked already that in Roman society, uh, women didn't have many rights, and of course that was true of slaves as well, both male and female slaves, of course. They didn't have many rights either. And a slave, principally, among everything else, a slave is, is not free. He, he can't or she can't go about and do whatever they want, can they? A slave is under authority. A, a, a slave is subject to his master. We've already talked, haven't we, that we're all subjects of the queen. And a slave was a subject of his master or her master. And Paul says, that's the contrast that I want you to understand. That's what you were before you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Before you became a son, you weren't an orphan, you weren't abandoned, you were a slave, subject to rules and authorities. Not a family relationship, a relationship of rules and regulations. Now, sons have freedom. Slaves, no freedom. And that's the contrast that Paul makes here. And this freedom is given to every Christian. That's part of sonship. It's receiving freedom. Now that doesn't mean... Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to say that a Christians are free? I've got friends who are not Christians, and they would think something like this. They're perhaps too polite to say it, but they would think something like this. They might think, 
poor old Mark. He's got to, and then a list of all the things that they think Christians have to do that are terribly boring, and who could possibly want to do any of that? They've got to go to church, and they can't do all of these things, they can't go and get drunk, and they can't go and do this, and they can't do that. Oh, these poor people, they're not free. Some of my friends would think to themselves, I'm free, they would say. I can do whatever I like. And I don't have to worry that some imaginary God is looking over my shoulder, they might, they might think and say. They would feel sorry for Christians, almost piteous. Because they think of Christianity as rules and regulations, and who wants to be subject to those? And here's the great irony. If you are not a Christian, if you are not a Christian, you relate to God how? Through rules and regulations. If you are a Christian, you relate to God how? Not through rules and regulations, but as family. The world has got it completely upside down. Christians, unlike the world, are free. We're the only people who truly are free. And let me put it like this, because you've heard sermons like this before, but sometimes it can be a little bit of kind of water off a duck's back, because we're so used to rules and regulations. So let me put it plainly. You see this, my Bible. If you're a Christian, you don't have to do anything that is in here, because you are free. You don't have to do anything that is in here because you're free. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I agree that we're free, but I think you've gone a bit too far, Mark. You can't say that. I know that some of you might be thinking that because I've preached a similar sermon in other churches and some people have said that. But actually, Romans 6 Paul says very clearly, Christians have been set free from sin. John chapter 8, Jesus tells us the truth will set us free. Now, does that mean we can do whatever we like? Sort of. Sort of. Let me give you an illustration that might help. Again, imagine you're living in Galatia in the first century when this was written. Imagine that you're a slave. And because you're a slave, you've got a long list of rules and regulations that you have to follow to be a good slave. And you've got them pinned up on your, on your wall. You're a fortunate slave. Someone taught you to read. You've got a list of rules and regulations. I've got, frankly, very little idea what slaves exactly did in the first century, but we'll make some things up and you'll see, uh, hopefully you can relate to what I'm saying. Let's imagine but this list on the, on the wall of the, uh, uh, um, in the slave's bedroom, your bedroom if you're a slave, says this. 4 a.m., get up and light the fires in the house. Uh, 5 a.m., uh, go out and collect the eggs from the chickens. 6 a.m., serve breakfast to the master. And then in brackets afterwards, it tells you exactly how he wants his eggs done. Seven o'clock, go down to the shops or whatever it might be. You get the idea. You've got this 
long list. These are all the rules and regulations that you've got to follow. And you're a slave. And there in your slave's quarters, the list is pinned on the wall above your bed. And that's what you do every day. But then one day, in this story, you get adopted as a son. And you move from the slave's quarters into the family quarters. Let me ask you a question. Do you take the list with you? You leave it behind, don't you? Your life's been transformed. You've been set free from that. Now, here's the question. What do you do now as a son? Do you sneak out at six o'clock in the morning, get the eggs from the chickens, and throw them at your new adopted father? Do you do that? You don't do that. You don't, before you go to bed at night, pour water on all the fireplaces so there can't be a fire, warm fire in the morning. You don't do that. But what you might do is this. You might say to the other slaves, look, I'm so thankful and grateful for all that's happened to me. I, I want to bring breakfast to my dad. That's what my boy said this morning. It only happens once a year, but nonetheless... I want to bring breakfast to dad. You might say that, mightn't you, if you've been adopted as a son? Thankfulness for all the privileges. And do you know what? I reckon that breakfast might be an even better breakfast than all the breakfast you prepared as a slave. It is true to say there is nothing in here that you have to do. It is equally true to say that if you truly are a son, then this book is full of things that you love to do. And if you use your freedom to throw eggs at your father, well, perhaps that demonstrates that you're not really a son at all. Because the son loves and lives better than the slave. And the son never forgets what his father loves. So there is freedom, complete freedom, that we use to love and serve our father. So we've seen already, if we're sons of God, we're adopted into God's family. If we're sons of God, we are free. Thirdly, finally, if we're sons of God, we are heirs. We're sons of God, we're heirs. Because that's the, the emphasis in chapter 4 and verse 7, isn't it? You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I, I gave a little illustration just moments ago, and I said, imagine you were a slave, and then you became adopted as a son. And you might be thinking, well, I understand the illustration, and uh, it kind of worked to make the point, but that would never happen. Well, let me tell you, it did happen. And it happened not infrequently in Roman society. In fact, it was reasonably common in the upper echelons of Roman society. And, and, and here's why. If you were a Roman and you had lots of wealth and a big estate, 
the chances are that that has been passed on to you from your father and grandfather. It's come down through the generations. It comes down to you. Maybe you don't have any sons. You've got no one to leave your estate to. You're the end of the line. Now, in, in Roman society, that would be considered a huge dishonor. It, it would be impossible. In Roman society, I think, well, that's okay. I, I, I'll, just, I'll just leave the estate to the cat's home. Or to charity. Or, or, or even to, to Cousin Mildred. That couldn't happen in Roman society. No, in, in Roman society, the estate had to be passed on to the son. So, so what would you do if you didn't have a son? You would adopt one. Imagine, this is perhaps harder to imagine than being a slave, but imagine you were rich and super wealthy and you wanted somebody to adopt as a son and maybe by this time, you're in your kind of 60s, 70s, you know you're not going to have a son naturally by, uh, by this stage and you're thinking, well, who on earth? Can I ask? You've got all these business associates but, but they're part of their own families. They're not going to want to come and be part of your family and you probably don't trust them all that much anyway. Who do, you, who do you trust? Well, if you are rich, you're a master, there's probably in your household one guy who's never let you down. And everything you've ever needed, he's done for you. And he knows you and he understands you and it's He's reliable and, and he knows exactly what you'd want and you yes trust him who's this one person your manservant your slave in other words and therefore it wasn't uncommon in a Roman household for a master to adopt a manservant a slave as his Heir. In fact, the Emperor Nerva appointed Trajan as his successor by adopting him as a son. Trajan, in turn, adopted Hadrian, the chap who built the wall, as his son. Why? Because that was the way by which heirs would inherit through sonship. Intimate connection between sonship and inheritance, and that's what Paul is saying. So if you are a son, you've been adopted, you are free, but you are also an heir. An heir to what? An heir to what? Well, what does a son inherit? All the riches of his father. What do we inherit? All the riches of our father. Heaven, but heaven's not just about escaping death and living forever. Heaven's about going home, going to be with our Father, being part of a family, brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world and from every generation, heirs together in Christ Jesus. 
I, I started the service by saying sometimes we forget that we're sons of God. But it's a truth to be remembered, isn't it? Because a truth that can change our life and the way that we live when we remember by nature we're sons of wrath. But God has adopted us by, sharing, by Jesus sharing his sonship with us. That has set us free from having to obey the law. We don't have to obey the law because Christ has obeyed it all on our behalf. But we love to obey the law. And we are heirs together with Christ with an inheritance imperishable. Let's pray, shall we, before we sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for all that it means. And Lord, we're amazed by these truths and just how much you love us and have given to us. So Father, we thank you and we pray that you will help us to believe it, to remember it, to live it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.